You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 66. on Conservation Podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we are visited by Wild Lens producer Sean Bogle for an update on our current documentary project entitled Souls of the Vermilion Sea. Now, those of you who follow the show are probably getting sick of all the Vaquita-themed episodes, but we simply can't help ourselves. We are engrossed in this new project about the struggle to save the Vaquita from extinction, and the situation down in the northern Gulf of California has intensified quite dramatically over the past couple of months. Sean is here to give us an update and to share his thoughts on what we were seeing during this recent trip down in San Felipe, Mexico. Before we jump into the conversation, however, I'll just provide a brief overview of the situation uh, just to get folks up to speed who haven't been following this issue as closely as we have been. So here we go. The vaquita is the world's most endangered marine mammal. There are probably 50 or fewer individuals remaining in the population at this point. They are found only in this very northernmost portion of the Gulf of California, and they are being killed by entanglement in gillnets, which are used almost universally by fishermen, uh, not just in this region, but all across the globe. When we began this film project, the Mexican government had just imposed a two-year ban on the use of gillnets within the Vaquitas range. But unfortunately, it is particularly difficult to enforce this ban because of the illegal fishery for the tatuaba. The tatuaba is a fish species also endemic to the northern Gulf of California and also considered endangered, which is being harvested solely for its swim bladder. The swim bladder of the tatuaba is highly prized in China, and a large female bladder will sell for thousands of dollars. So despite the ban on gillnets, we've been paying very close attention to this illegal tatuaba fishery, which does utilize gillnets, um, and which is also currently at its seasonal height. Sean will be telling us about what we learned about uh, the intensity of this illegal fishery, as well as what this means for the vaquita and for our film project, Souls of the Vermilion Sea. Here's Sean. All right. I am here with Sean Bogle, who is a producer here at Wild Lens. Uh, How are you, Sean? Hey, Matt. How's it going? I'm doing just fine. That's good to hear. Um, Well, welcome back to the show, Sean. It's been close to a year now since we began production on our new documentary project about the struggle to save the vaquita, which we have dubbed Souls of the Vermilion Sea. Um, We had you on the show soon after we began production on this project to announce that initial fundraising effort that we did last summer, um, but also to provide everyone with an overview of the issues facing the vaquita and how we plan to cover this story in our film. And a lot has happened uh, over the past year. Um, And our most recent shoot down there in San Felipe, Mexico, was uh, particularly, I guess I would say, enlightening for us. Um, So maybe you can just start off, Sean, by giving us just sort of a quick status update. You know, what, what have we learned over the past month or so about the situation facing the vaquita? We've had about four expeditions down there uh, from the inception of this project. Um, and then now we are in 2016 spring, 
and we knew when we wanted to return and this was during the Tatuaba season and this was probably the most radical trip that we've had as far as how much change there's been in not only in the story but in the survival of the Bakita. Um, the level of urgency at this point is is enormous. Um, it's it's a lot more than what we thought before, um, and I say that just because we've uh, we've had several uh, well we've had several dead vaquita um, since the start of this uh, period of Tatuaba fishing, which is also the fishing for corvina, which is a staple fish that the fishermen are permitted to use gill nets on as well. So, you know, you might think that you know three dead vaquitas like you know that's that's not very many um but you know when you're talking about a population of animals that you know is likely at a level of 50 individuals or possibly even fewer um finding three dead animals is a big deal um and especially when you consider the fact that two of those three dead vaquitas were found just out floating out in the middle of the Vaquita Refuge in the northern Gulf of California um, by uh, these two Sea Shepherd boats um, that have been helping the Mexican Navy with enforcement. So you basically have two boats that are surveying an area that's roughly the size of Connecticut, and they came across, just by chance, two dead Vaquitas floating out there in the sea. So it's pretty easy to imagine that this is likely just the tip of the iceberg and that, you know, uh, most likely more than three vaquitas have been killed by this illegal gillnet fishery for Tatuaba in the past few months. Yeah. Might I add though, um, and I, and I actually don't know the sex of the, uh, deceased individuals, but, um, the other thing to consider is that every time you remove a vaquita, if that, if one of them is a female, um, that makes the situation even worse, uh, just because when you take out the breeders, um, the, the population takes even a larger hit. It would be great to know what that number was, right? I mean, at this point, we really have no idea, um, you know, what that population estimate might be. Um, you know, Sean, you mentioned that the, you know, we participated in and worked to document um, that survey effort that happened for Vaquita um, on the Ocean Star uh, this past fall, um, they still have not come out with that population estimate from that, um, that survey, have they? No, uh, Serva is working on that data right now, and I believe uh, they should have results by May. So we're in a situation where the population, the most accurate population estimate from this past fall is still unknown, and yet by the time it's released, it will basically be well, I, I, I won't say meaningless, but it will not be a true reflection of the current population status of the species. You know, and, and any sort of estimates that we make of the size of the population are sort of purely speculative at this point. Um, but, you know, I, what, I, I want to talk about, you know, what, what we were seeing when we were down there um, on this most recent shoot and um, the fact that you know, it, it, it appeared to us as if there was this increase in the intensity of the illegal Tatuaba fishery when compared to previous uh, Tatuaba seasons. Well, the, the season technically starts sometime in November, but it's not really rolling with full momentum um, 
you know, until February. And then of course, March and April are, is the height of the season. And, and it typically ends in, uh, in May and can go all the way to the beginning of June. Um, prior to our arrival there, Sea Shepherd had already come across, um, you know, in addition to the three dead vaquita, um, over the holidays, uh, December 24th, they found a, um, a humpback calf. And then recently they found, uh, well, also a great white shark, uh, several dolphin rays, um, another humpback whale. And then while we were there, um, we discovered, um, another gray whale, um, in addition to that. So, you know, this, this fishing is obviously not discriminating any of the species. Uh, you know, the vaquita are one of many animals that are being impacted uh, by the skill net use um, during this time of corvina fishing. So um, the the thing that's very diff- difficult to understand, um, and I hope I don't confuse anybody by saying this, but so when there's a season for corvina fishing, and it's it's the only time that the government has permitted to use gillnets during this gillnet ban, and. This means that they go out and they take that fine mesh gillnet, the monofilament gillnet, and they go out and, you know, they're supposed to dip the net for roughly 30 to 40 minutes in the water and then pull it and and take out fish. The confusing part is that because the illegal fishery um, of the Twaba is exactly at the same time as Corvina, um, you, there's no way to know that the, those that are fishing Corvina are not fishing for Tatuaba, um, without there being some sort of oversight or checking those pangas going in and out of the water. Um, it's very difficult to know what's happening, um, underwater because we've heard many strategies that are being used to use, you know, using the Corvina, uh, story, I should say, to cover up for the actual Tatuaba fishing. Um, and that's where they, they lay the, the larger mesh gillnet for the Tatuaba underneath um, or below the gillnet that they're fishing for Corvina, um, just so that it looks like they're fishing for Corvina. So, um, but a lot of this fishing is actually occurring at night. So before they were, Corvina is supposed to take place during the day. And uh, the Tatuaba fishing has gone um, into the evening hours uh, as now that it's not open anymore, um, people are being a lot more private about it. But the and because this is really amped up, um, it's not. I mean, prior to us getting there, and, and even more so now, the military has increased tenfold down there. I mean, I remember being there last May, and there were two uh, Navy vessels um, out there. But now it's a completely different story. Um, not only are there those Navy ships that are there, but there's also uh, military aircraft, um, helicopters. The Army has now joined the Navy, um, and we've got the numbers of troops there, I think, are like 500, 600 combined. Um, and they're doing surveys around the clock as well as there's troops on the ground with, uh, with weapons uh, so it's it's not a you know it's very it's it's very surreal because people come down there for vacation um, in, in addition to the people that live there. But now there, there's a strong military presence. Is uh, it's just made it a very very unusual place to be. You touched on a number of important 
points there, and you know, I just want to reiterate the role that this corvina fishery has had, and sort of how it's sort of played together with this illegal tatuaba fishery. Um, and you know, this is this was basically a loophole in the gillnet ban that allowed this very limited use of gillnets um, to fish for corvina uh, only up in the delta of the Colorado River. And the idea is that, you know, the nets are not left unattended, so there's no chance that this particular use of gill nets could harm the vaquita. However, what this does is it gives these fishermen an excuse to be out on the water in their boats with gill nets in the boat. Whereas when this season isn't taking place, fishermen have no uh, legal reason to be out on the water with a gill net in the boat. Um, so fishermen can be out with the intention of going out and fishing to Twaba, and if any enforcement boat stops them, they can just say, oh, I was going out to fish for Corvina. Of course I'm not fishing for Tatuaba. Um, so these things are sort of interacting, and I, I think that is definitely one of these sort of contributing factors that has led to this dramatic increase, at least what seems to us to be a dramatic increase in the intensity of the illegal Tatuaba fishery in the region. You know, I, I think in a certain sense, uh, you know, it, it, it gives a little bit of hope to see that, that the Mexican government um, has, you know, reacted to this crisis situation uh, in this region in the northern Gulf and has, you know, as you said, really dramatically stepped up the presence of the military and the Navy in that region. Um, but I mean, does this give you hope? I mean, uh, is, does it, it sort of provide any shred of hope to see that, you know, the military is sort of stepping up and, and, and really increasing their enforcement efforts? Well, uh, my philosophy with, with, with any story, whether I'm covering any species or how I, you know, how I, uh, deal with, even within my biology job, I'm always, I'm personally always going to have hope. And I mean, yes, it it does seem very hopeful that the military is really up their game and they are uh, trying trying to keep up with. But really, there's a sense of cat and mouse that's happening here. So you can have a lot of military presence, but that's also a lot of coastline to cover. So in addition to the military, um, there you know there needs to be other actions done by citizens on the ground awareness as far as you know, what does illegal activity look like um, to get them at all points of entry um, or when they're exiting the water um, because the military like I said they can't they just can't cover everything so um, I do find that to be hopeful I, I find that also when things seem to get down to the wire and there's this level of urgency that more people feel desperate and they want to help um, I think that's fantastic. I, I find that it's a little unfortunate, though, that this happened so late in the game. I feel like we all should have been more involved or, or should have been more active, including um, the, the, the Mexican government, a little bit sooner. Um, this is just this is a very delayed response. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people are thinking that. But, you know, with the amount of little time, it is it is so much better to be doing something than just shrugging your shoulders saying that, okay, well, it's just, it's just too late. So I, I, I think that what they're doing is everything within their power at this time with, um, with the resources that they have. I mean, do you think that more folks should have seen this coming? You know, I, I, I feel like, you know, once 
this, you know, and you mentioned this uh, conference that you attended, uh, the Society of Marine Mammalogy Conference, where, um, you know, Rafael Pacchiano and um, uh, all these, you know, this official from the Mexican government was given this, this really big award. I mean, this was a big deal, you know, sort of the international marine conservation community recognizing these individuals from the government of Mexico for this, you know, supposedly really positive step that they took towards trying to save the vaquita by imposing this gillnet ban. Um, but it, it seems to me that the way this is actually played out is that the closing of the shrimp fishery, you know, may actually be contributing to an increase in participation in this illegal Tatuaba fishery. Um, I mean, I guess my question for you is, like, how did how did everybody miss the boat on this, you know? I mean, how is it that nobody, seems like nobody foresaw the situation playing out in the way that it has. I don't know. I, I don't feel that people truly were not aware. I think there were a lot of people saying we have a problem. We need to address it now because this is what the outcome is going to be. And now we are at that outcome that those people projected just for some reason. Um, they, they just didn't get, they didn't have the clout or um, people just didn't respond to what they were saying. Well, I mean, let me, let me, let me ask you the question this way, you know, I mean, for you personally, you know, okay. I mean, because, you know, you and I have been involved in this issue, you know, and you to an even greater extent than I am. I mean, we've been engrossed in this thing for, uh, you know, over a year now and, you know, probably to an even greater extent than a lot of these researchers that are involved in it. You know, we are digging into every single aspect of this issue surrounding Vaquita conservation and talking to, uh, you know, virtually every player who's involved in this recovery effort for the species. Um, I mean, do you feel like we missed the boat here? Like, do you, I mean, do you feel like we had a, maybe a false sense of hope when that gillnet ban was implemented about a year ago? Uh, probably. I mean, you know, more than anything, we went into this, you know, oh, we're going to document this for two years, um, thinking that, it's going to be a gradual play out and there was a strong level of hope. I mean, it, I don't think like this, the pressure that I feel now is, is so intense compared to where I was when I first started, when I thought that, Oh, we have time. Like, yeah, there's a chance the Vaquita might go extinct, but it, it seemed, it didn't seem as, uh, as concrete as it does now. I mean, I, as of right now, it feels like there is a, a downward spiral is what's happening. Um, whether we can plug this hole before all the water's gone, I, I, that's the part I don't know, but I, in a way we just didn't have that foresight, um, as we were basing everything off of what other people were telling us until we started learning more about it ourselves. Um, you know, we should have probably the way we feel now, this is how we should have started strong when we initially started the project. But, you know, we didn't we didn't know a lot of things now. Um, and I know that those early interviews that we did with fishermen um, that had said you you need to come back during Tatuaba season. Of course, at that time, it's it was June and they were telling me to come back in March. And they said they all said it's going to be really bad. You know, the, the fishermen just knew how hungry people were for these bladders and how much money could be. And, and despite any attention that the vaquita was getting, it wasn't going to matter. So, I mean, I, I just didn't think at that time that it was as serious as some of them had said, but now I, I clearly see it and, uh, it's, 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 
really too bad. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really interesting point that you make about sort of the fact that it really was the fishermen who were the ones who, who had that foresight um, and who were the ones who were sort of warning us about what might happen this spring um, as, you know, this, this year's Tatuaba season hit its peak. The opinions of the fishermen down in San Felipe, Santa Clara, Puerto Bernasco, it varies, like, like varies immensely uh, as far as what, what people think about Vaquita, whether they're pro-Vaquita or anti-Vaquita. Um, and I know that one of them, you know, you do have some fishermen that are down there that are trying to do everything they possibly can through collaboration with a lot of these um, outside organizations, you know, awareness, outreach, um, you know, coming up with their uh, alternative ways of livelihoods or even fishing gear. Um, but then on the other hand, there are fishermen that flat out want the vaquita to go extinct um, just so that it's, you know, because it's kind of more of a thorn in their side. And if it goes extinct, um, then they think everything will just go back to business as usual and they'll be able to use gill nets and, um, you know, that's everything will go back to normal. The sad thing about that is not just that somebody would just trash a life like that, but once the vaquita has gone and if they were to go back to that type of fishing, as you can see now, um, those, like I said before, those gill nets do not discriminate. So, um, it's, they're just pretty much going to be, um, killing all the other species, um, you know, one at a time as well. So, I mean, the, 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 this, this is affecting a whole variety of marine mammals in there. And I, I hope that people are realizing that this isn't just about the vaquita. One of the things that, you know, we were sort of told right from the beginning of this project, but that really came into much sharper focus on this most recent trip was the role that Mexican drug cartels are playing in the illegal trade in Tatuaba swim bladders. I'm wondering, you know, what you can tell us about the role of the cartels. Well, this is this is very difficult to even talk about this just because a story like this with everybody that we've talked to about the various elements um, of this issue, it's very difficult to fact check a lot of items. Um, and this is one of them. However, it was speculated a long, long time ago that, you know, whatever there's a variety of terms being used, you know, organized crime um, in addition to, you know, cartels. And of course, when you think of cartels, you th you know, much like what you would on the media or television, they are uh, drug overlords that are smuggling drugs from point A to point B. Um, and, you know, that's that's although I've heard people deny this, but then I've heard a lot of people um, declare that this is exactly what's going on and more so now than ever that this is happening. So that that thought that cartels are operating um, in this region, you know, uh, overseeing this, uh, swim bladder trade seems to be more legitimate now than it ever was. But of course it's, like I said, it's, it's difficult to, to know if it's really true, but, um, essentially the cartels realize that there is a lot of money to be made here and smuggling swim bladders is much easier than smuggling, um, 
lot of heroin or cocaine, you know, say, and because the bladders can be condensed, whether they're dry or wet into a small little container and they can still be worth more than much of the drugs that are usually smuggled. Um, so of course people are, you know, said that they're in the area and they're, they're doing their take and, you know, we're trying to understand exactly what that series of events looks like. It looks like the fishermen are hired to go out and collect these, these bladders. So they'll catch the Tuava, they'll gut the, um, the, the Tuava, they'll remove the swim bladder, they'll discard the fish, and then they will bring the swim bladder ashore and either they give it directly to somebody right when they get ashore or it gets run to like Tijuana or Mexicali um, and then given to somebody else. And of course that's where it's traded and then it gets smuggled across. And then it either, if it isn't, if it already hasn't seen a dry house, which is where the bladders are dried, um, then it goes across the border, um, which is handed off to according to, uh, us fish and wildlife law enforcement. Uh, many of the, the arrests that have been made have been of, of individuals of Chinese descent. And then they're usually the ones drying the bladders and then of course they're smuggled uh, in suitcases or uh via plane to hong kong or via ship so uh there's this is a serious um series of events that only you know i would think only cartels could organize something so elaborate um just so that you know it can make it all the way to where that they know that they can make the money it does seem to me, you know, the sense that, that I think we have gotten um, from sort of all of the many conversations that we had with folks down there, you know, I mean, most of which were, were off camera, um, is that, you know, the cartels have finally realized how much money there is in this, um, in this illegal trade in swim bladders um, and that they have really started to capitalize on that. Um, to a much greater extent than was maybe going on in previous years. Um, and I think, you know, that in combination with the fact that you have more and more fishermen that are sort of uh, uh, going out and, and participating in this illegal fishery, um, and we could speculate for hours about, you know, what has sort of led to that. But, you know, it's certainly clear that, that the high reward um, and the high you know, sort of price that is placed on those swim bladders is certainly a central factor of that. You know, I suspect that the fact that, you know, the shrimp fishery in the region was effectively closed down as a result of the gillnet ban, that a lot of those fishermen that, you know, maybe wouldn't have participated in the illegal Tatuaba fishery, you know, when there was still a legal viable fishery in the region, you know, have now started to get involved because they feel like they simply have no other choice because they're literally is not uh, a legal viable fishery in the region, you know, with the one exception of that very limited Corvina fishery that we discussed earlier. But, um, I mean, what, what I want to ask you about next, Sean, is, you know, both of us are biologists turned wildlife filmmakers, uh, but the role that we're playing on this project at the moment feels a whole lot more like investigative journalism. Um, I'm just wondering if you could have ever imagined yourself in a situation like this at this same time last year when we jumped into this project. You know, I never, you know, when you say that, it's like I picture like Dan Rather, you know, in the trenches, uh, you know, of some war 
shaken environment. And, you know, even though it's not as extreme as that down there, uh, it, it feels that way in that you have to be very careful who you're talking to, how you talk to them. And because, I mean, in a strange way, I almost feel like you can't trust anybody um, because everybody's going to tell you what you want to hear. Um, and that makes it very difficult to know whether you are, are getting the, the correct information or whether you're just following somebody that is, um, in a sense, tricking you in a way just so that you you are distracted from really what's going on. Um, but no, I, I never what I'm, you know, what I'm personally experiencing now with some of these, these situations that I'm in down there is, uh, it is very, it's very new, uh, for me. It's not, it's not like shooting some of the other stuff for like our, our EOC series, or even when I'm in the field, you know, it doesn't have that, like talking about a conservation effort. This is, this feels like real life. Uh, and that, you know, you can feel the, the desperation from the fishermen and you can feel the intensity from the military. And I mean, rumor or not, um, when you add all these things together, um, it makes it a very, uh, a very serious environment not to be taken lightly. Um, although, um, I, I don't, I just don't want to come across as being naive or getting, getting in over my head. I'm, I definitely have taken a step back to be a little more observant and cautious of exactly who it is I'm talking to and what we're talking about. Um, but this is, you know, this, <laughs> this role is definitely is, is it's, it's much different than some of the other methods that we've used uh, when we're, when we're doing documentary work. You know, I'm going to be honest here. I mean, when I was down there, you know, and we're ex- experiencing some of the things we were experiencing and having some of the conversations that we were having, I mean, I did feel like I was naive and that I was maybe in over my head. I mean, you know, it's just not the type of situation that you expect to find yourself in um, as a wildlife filmmaker. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm used to, you know, sitting in a blind for hours and hours uh, in order to, like, get that, you know, one perfect moment of, like, animal behavior captured on camera. Um you know, that I can deal with, but I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's intense, you know? And I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's scary. And, uh, there's, you know, like you said, you have to be really, really careful about what you say when you talk to folks down there and it's really hard to be trusting of anybody that you talk to. So, well, it does, it feels like one of those scripted television shows, but what's just so odd is that it's not scripted. Um, you know, when I say like those shows, like, uh, undercover where there's loud music and people are leaning over the table and they're like whispering something to you. And it just, it's, it's very, it's, yeah, it's very strange. So, I mean, given what we saw down there during this past shoot, you know, we have basically gone through this process where we have sort of realized that we need to dramatically shift our approach towards producing this film um, simply because we want to be able to release something with enough time that it could have an impact on the outcome of the issue. Right. Um, so maybe you can just talk a little bit about like that process that we've been going through. Um, and you know, some of the changes that we're sort of considering, uh, implementing, um, as we move forward with this project. 
Well, I know, you know, initially we had our plan was to, you know, document this issue. So covering the two year Gilnet ban and then we were going to have a full feature uh, released by 2018. So about a year after the Gilnet ban was lifted or sustained. And then in between there, we were going to release some shorts, which were going to focus on individual efforts um, uh, of the struggle. But now, especially with everything that's happened, um, we will continue to document the the duration, uh, as we initially stated. But in order to have an impact and to have relevant information, you know, it just seems – it seems necessary that we create something now. And I don't mean just a, just a little short, um, something that can be used, um, you know, uh, television broadcast quality, um, something that can be used and shared with a lot of other organizations, but something a little more comprehensive that will definitely cover everything that we have documented and in, in the story from beginning to end. But the idea of releasing something sooner um, is to stress this urgency because, you know, we're talking months are left now um, as far as the possibility that the Vaquita could go extinct. And it would, it would just seem pointless to release something after the fact. So this idea of releasing something sooner um, is, is another hopeful uh, tactic to get out so more people can be aware of the situation and hopefully we can um, do more than what we're doing right now is the I mean that's 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 the idea that we've been on the fence about I know that we were kind of confused about you know well do we do this or oh, do we do that and now it just seems like we should I mean that we should do, release something now or soon very very soon so that's that's I know that we've going back and forth of that and just trying to see what that looks like is um, what we're working on right now. This places us in, in a, a pretty interesting situation, a situation that we, we haven't really ever been in before as filmmakers, which is, uh, you know, sort of capturing this extreme sense of urgency, but then also, you know, feeling this, this separate sense of urgency of like, you know, we, you know, we're so engrossed in this issue and, you know, we care so much about the outcome of what's happening um, that, you know, we really have to push ourselves um, to be in a position where we're ready to release something, like you said, that sort of presents this story in the most comprehensive way possible and has the greatest potential to have an impact on the outcome of the issue, um, I mean, immediately, as soon as we possibly can. I don't know. I, d- I, I definitely feel... A little bewildered, bewildered, confused, um, you know, stressed, uh, trying to figure out what the next step is and what the right step is. Um, and I think there's a lot of people on that level. I mean, there's a lot of effort for these like long term plans. Um, but, you know, the only the only thing that's important now as far as, you know, the most immediate plan is this enforcement that the Mexican government is doing down there and then getting this information out. Um, to the world as fast as possible. That's that's really is that's what needs to happen right now. I was thinking that maybe you could uh, explain um, how we were able to sort of help 
uh, coalesce this uh, sort of small group of community members in the San Felipe, San Felipe region together to create this new uh, Friends of the Vaquita Action Committee? Well, so um, living in California, uh, you know, there are many groups called Friends of the dot, 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 Friends of the Elephant Seal, Friends of the Sea Otter. Um, and it just seemed obvious that there had to be more eyes on the beaches and on the water um, because the military can't cover all that area. Um, and in particular, because there was an instance, you know, one of the three Bakita that was found, one that washed up on the beach, um, was found by a um, a citizen that lived in one of those communities down those expat communities. And these are people that are, you know, some of them are transient. Some of them live there permanently, but either way, there's a lot of them going in and out of there that are, you know, going on their, their walks on the beach, um, or are just hanging out. And by having them to be informed, and take that little extra step as far as like, you know, looking out for suspicious activity. Um, and then of course, identifying and reporting, um, dead marine life. Um, that's huge. Um, as far as, uh, covering more ground. So why not apply these, these groups that they have, um, in the U S and start one down there. So that essentially that's what we did is we approached that, um, uh, a woman, who found the vaquita and, you know, suggested, you know, it would be really great is if we could create a group down here where people could learn more about um, the issue and the vaquita and the, and the tatuaba and kind of develop, you know, a little a little committee where they, you know, start a campaign in San Felipe um, and in the upper Gulf. So the idea, of, I mean, right now it only exists in San Felipe, but um, the idea is to create awareness in that area. I mean, right now the Vaquita has a very negative light on it. Um, it is, the Vaquita is a burden to many. And when you think Vaquita down there, you don't, there's, there's zero uh, Vaquita symbolism at all. You, there's, there's nothing there's not you, you hardly ever, I mean, there's I think there's like a couple buildings that have a vaquita on it, but that's about it. And talking to many of the locals, um, they have a variety of opinions about it. So the idea would be to engage the community um, and get involved with not only these outside communities, but also the people that live and are from San Felipe and have these conversations with them and give them materials and create signage um so that people can be aware because a lot of people they just don't know the facts they don't they don't know anything as a matter of fact i mean and what little information they do have a lot of it is um is false uh so it sends this a lot of people are confused about what's happened so we strangely enough had a small meeting i did a presentation um, and, uh, a member of Sea Shepherd was there also to contribute. And, um, although it was initially very small, um, you know, we've got a Facebook page now and the community is tied into what the, another Facebook page called San Felipe talk. And this is essentially how a lot of those communities get their information is how they communicate with each other. So this is now a specific group that is catered 
um, solely to um, Vikita awareness. And it's the buzz is growing. It's really quite it's quite wonderful to see this, but to pump energy into a lot of these individuals that wanted to help but didn't know how to do it. But now that they realize there's a lot of them that want to help, they now can brainstorm together as far as like what it is exactly that they need to do in that community to help those communities as far as, um, you know, uh, commerce um, in San Felipe, um, having them, uh, you know, su- support the local businesses um, in, you know, creating vaquita paraphernalia or, um, you know, little anything that markets vaquita. Um, or anything that you can that, that starts a conversation about it, um, and then it is reinforced by this information that the group will um, share with with a lot of these uh, with the local community. Um, that's a start, um, and that's that's it's really a grassroots uh, effort. And um, you know, it's it's really wonderful to see people come together um, for a common cause and contributing all their skills and their talents to um to try to figure out a way to address this issue so it's you know friends of the vaquita action committee is um you know a really new concept uh down there but it it seems to be really taken off it's certainly nice to see that that there is you know a group of local people that seem to be coalescing behind this idea and are excited to learn more about the vaquita and are willing to step up and take the action that's necessary to help ensure that the species doesn't go extinct. So I think I think that's a sort of a good a good hopeful sort of point amidst all of this craziness um, to sort of leave folks off on. Um, but I, I will mention before before we go that um, Sean, you are about to leave to head back down to the Northern Gulf region to continue covering what's going on down there. This was sort of a last minute trip that you felt like you had to take just because of the uh, uh, really intense situation that's going on down there and also sort of the realignment of our schedule for the release of the film that we're working on developing. I'm sure we'll be posting more blog updates uh, on the website, vaquitafilm.com. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Sean, for coming on the show and sharing this important perspective and um, talking about what we've been learning down there in the northern Gulf of California. Uh, thanks, Matt. I, I enjoyed ha- uh, being on the show. Uh, you know, it's I, I just the last thing that I would want to say is that there no matter what you get out of this podcast or what you read in the headlines there, there is there's a great deal of hope that Vikita really can pull through this. Um, but we all need to gather together to make that happen. Thanks a lot, Sean. Thanks, Matt. All right, that was our conversation with fellow Wild Lens filmmaker Sean Bogle, who is currently back in Mexico shooting for our documentary, Souls of the Vermilion Sea. As I'm sure you can tell from the conversation, both Sean and I were blown away by what we saw on this most recent trip to Mexico, and I think this show shows an important lesson for other filmmakers. It shows the importance of being flexible and always ready to adapt your production timeline as well as the direction of your story itself Um, And and the importance of this truly cannot be understated. Obviously, this is going to be very different depending on the story itself and the film project that you're working on. But this ability to adapt to a changing situation and to not lose sight of the end goal for a project is certainly important no matter what you're working on. 
If you enjoyed this conversation, definitely head on over to our website for Souls of the Vermilion Sea, which you can find at vaquitafilm.com. Sean and I will be sharing updates from the field on that site uh, pretty regularly. And, of course, you can always check out the show notes for this episode uh, where you can find that link to our Vaquita website at wildlensinc.org slash EOC66. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.